This podcast is open for anybody to listen to, but is produced primarily for undergraduate medical students for educational and entertainment purposes only. It is not to be used as professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of a healthcare professional with any questions you may have about your own health. Thank you and enjoy. Welcome back to Defining Schizophrenia. Over our final three episodes, we have had the privilege of interviewing two clinicians with experience of treating patients with schizophrenia and psychosis. We hope that you find their insights to be as valuable as we did. My name is Tom Dalton. I'm a core trainee in psychiatry. Tom is currently working in West London, having spent his foundation years based in Bristol Academy. Schizophrenia is fairly household name in in mental illness i suppose but it's a it's a bit of a slippery concept to grasp because it's quite a big entity um i think the easiest way to define it is to say that it's a a disease where it's a chronic disease where psychosis is sort of the central feature so i suppose you probably have to define psychosis first um and psychosis the definition that's usually given is uh an illness process that cause you to lose your grasp of reality is one way of putting it. I suppose it, it um, yeah, it's kind of any disease process that uh, interferes with your brain's ability to perceive and process reality, perceive and interpret reality. And, you know, the classic features are experiencing hallucinations and delusions and also thought disorder. Uh, so yeah, hallucinations being hear, it's hearing things mainly, but also seeing whatever feeling, um, having sensations that uh, things aren't, aren't really there. Uh, and then delusions, these funny beliefs that come out of nowhere, uh, where you suddenly become absolutely convinced um, that usually it's someone trying to harm you. Um, but it could be, it could be grandiose delusions, can be all, all sorts of different delusions, a, a vast menagerie of different things that you can suddenly believe. Uh, and so, yeah, psychosis can present in quite a lot of different ways with mixtures of different hallucinations and delusions. Classically, the hallucinations tend to be auditory, verbal, so hearing voices. Uh, and the delusions are often paranoid, persecutory. There's some big thing going on involving me and something's trying to harm me. And the details are filled in by each individual, I guess. If you go back in time, you had people believing that demons or oh, I don't know something irrelevant to the historical context was was persecuting them and now I don't know in the 80s you had people believing they're being abducted by aliens yeah. and now you have I don't know whatever 5G yeah. uh, so, <laughs> something like that but so the, the the content will vary completely on the person but sort of the form of it tends to be fairly similar um and then schizophrenia so schizophrenia will start generally with a first episode of psychosis. So someone is not psychotic and then they become unwell and they become psychotic. They develop these these experiences. Um, and then from that point, you know, about I say about a third of people will get better and not have another episode of psychosis. And you wouldn't really say they have schizophrenia. They've just had an episode of psychosis. Mm. Um, uh, about a third of people will have some more episodes in the future and they may or may not be said to have schizophrenia. You know, if it's kind of well controlled and actually most of their life they don't have any psychosis, you might not necessarily call it schizophrenia. But then a third of people, um, so say the numbers, will um, 
have more kind of chronic grumbling problems. Maybe they'll never quite recover to baseline or they'll have lots and lots of relapses. Uh, and that's really what schizophrenia is. But as well as just having, you know, chronic psychosis, essentially, or chronic relapsing remitting psychosis, you also have these these neg these other symptoms of schizophrenia, the so-called negative symptoms, um, so-called because they subtract something from your experience. Uh, these have you know, probably heard of them, they're these... Um, Anhedonia, oh, yeah. this, this social withdrawal, withdrawal from the world, this loss of vital contact with reality, is as, as it's been put sometimes. Um, so that's a kind of another dimension to schizophrenia that you wouldn't see in just, I don't know, drug-induced or stress-induced episode of psychosis yeah. That, yeah. that goes away after a month or so. Um, yeah, that's pretty much what schizophrenia is. Um, it's, I mean, obviously, part of the definition of any illness is that it, yeah. has a big impact on someone's functioning and their yeah. quality of life and schizophrenia very often does but mm -hmm. also it's pretty treatable like psychosis as is in of itself so the positive symptoms of schizophrenia are really are really treatable so it's not the idea that schizophrenia is this chronic illness that no one can recover from is not really accurate um but yeah sorry that's a bit Brilliant. rambling but i'm sure you have no, other questions fantastic just sorry just before we move on to the next question just for my own understanding you mentioned that um if schizophrenia becomes very well controlled and essentially was two episodes of psychosis, do you still keep the diagnosis of schizophrenia? That is a good question. Um, I suppose my definition that schizophrenia is just where you have lots of psychosis that's chronic doesn't quite capture maybe what schizophrenia classically is. So maybe I should clarify that a little bit. The sort of the classic presentation of paranoid schizophrenia um, and the particular features that it has, and you may have heard of like Schneider's first rank symptoms mm. um, that are quite recognisable, that don't happen in every kind of psychosis. Um, we don't anymore sort of say that's what schizophrenia is. If you have those symptoms, you definitely have schizophrenia, sort of the, the idea yeah. that they're pathognomonic. But um, I suppose... You can often recognise, even when someone's in their first episode of psychosis, that this has some actual emerging features of, of schizophrenia, whereas a more transient acute psychotic episode or psychosis in the con con context of a manic episode, for instance, might look a bit different. So it's a bit, it becomes a bit more intangible and perhaps less difficult to clearly define. But, um, yeah. but you can start to suspect that something is schizophrenia. Um, in terms of how it presents even the first time and then if someone's you know had that classic presentation and maybe have recovered and is completely well at the moment you'd probably say they have schizophrenia and it's in remission mm -hmm. um, right okay but yeah I mean the, def the dividing line because there's none of this is very very clear cut so the dividing line between someone who had one episode of psychosis and actually I had some they had some thought withdrawal or whatever passivity phenomena some of these classic features but then they got completely better. Now they don't have any evidence of psychosis. Maybe they won't have another psychotic episode ever. You might not say that they have schizophrenia, but yeah, can become a bit blurry at the edges. Yeah, so obviously um, by the sounds, it's quite a complex definition between acute psychosis and chronic schizophrenia and where that line is drawn. And are there any like particular ways in which you can like help explain that to patients and help them have an understanding of their chronic condition. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose you explain what's happening to the person 
kind of when it's at, so I know when someone comes in with their first episode of Psychosis, you're not going to be talking to them about chronic schizophrenia yet because yeah. we'll just worry them and it's not really helpful. Um, <laughs> uh, and what I tend to, I mean, obviously by the very nature of psychosis, someone might have to come into their hospital against their will and they have no desire to take the medications you want because they're not ill. They have, I don't know, the some organisation chasing after them, trying to harm them, or they, their neighbours are trying to poison them, or whatever it is, that's the reality for them. Yeah. That's a really important thing to remember. So explaining their illness to them at that point in the illness where they don't have insight into it is... I mean, we always try, but, you know, to some extent, you might not get very far at that point. Um, but, uh, you know, you kind of get there gradually, and it we're talking about over a matter of weeks, maybe, that someone might start to recover and gain insight into their psychosis. And then you can start talking to them and, and to their families as well about what it means, what, what, is, what has just happened. And very often people might not actually remember what happened at the height of their psychosis when they were you know, running around on the motorway, shouting at cars or whatever, whatever it might be. Um, whatever kind of partly humorous but also horrendously dangerous thing was happening to them yeah. in this kind of crisis point. Um, they may not remember that and maybe they might not want to know you don't you don't necessarily describe to everyone in detail what they were like when they were most ill unless they really want to and even then you kind of support them through that but anyhow and in terms of explaining what is happening to them uh yeah you would explain what an episode of psychosis is in kind yeah. of to be honest similar terms to the ones i've just used um you're obviously going to avoid all the jargon but you want to give them a picture of of what's happened this is this is what this illness is like and you know this is something we treat, treat every day it's very treatable the what what has happened to you makes sense because you had these symptoms and these symptoms and these symptoms that are you know commonly happen with this illness so it's kind of normalizing it a bit even though it's a very abnormal thing as far as their experience is concerned uh and then i i find the numbers that can be a bit helpful in terms of you know a third of people will get better and never have another episode. A third of people might have one or two more episodes over their life. And a third of people might have more chronic problems. Um, that gives a realistic picture, I guess, of what's likely to happen. And it's... So in the treatment of psychosis, I guess maybe getting ahead of myself a bit, I don't know what questions you have next, but in the treatment of psychosis, something that's really important is this critical period, as they say, within the first year, 18 months, two years or so of the initial onset of psychosis, yeah. of treating it well and trying to reduce the symptoms as much as you can with antipsychotic medication and other psychological therapies, kind of in that time is so crucial. Uh, and kind of the main thing that you're often persuading people to do is, you know, once they've got well and they're about to leave hospital, you have to keep taking this medication for the next 18 months, whatever have you, because even even though you feel fine and probably the medications are going to give you some annoying side effects like weight gain or whatever have you. Um, but you have to stop it coming back in that kind of critical window just because all of the evidence suggests that if you allow the symptoms to kind of grow and continue and keep coming back and relapse in that window, it's more likely that the outcomes are going to be worse long term. Mm -hmm. And there's something about, even though, you know, we don't understand exactly what's going on with the psychotic disease process. You know, we have all sorts of neurobiological facts about, you know, this is what's happening in the brain of someone with schizophrenia or psychosis. But we, you know, obviously we don't know how the brain works, so we can't piece it all together completely. Yeah. But there's this sense that the psychotic disease process, if it's allowed to just carry on and get worse, it sort of snowballs a little bit. Um, 
I guess in the same way that lots of illnesses, if left untreated, you end up with a different and worse kind of condition than you would have had if it had been treated and stopped at the beginning. And psychosis does seem to be a bit like that, that you can really, by treating it well at the start and not allowing those delusions to become really, really set in and whatever have you, um, you can increase the chances that that person's going to eventually be symptom free and not have any more episodes. Uh, so that's something that you often explain to people quite near the start is the importance of treatment in that clinical window and you, the numbers help to, you know, visualize. You can nudge yourself into that third of people who don't have any more symptoms mm-hmm. if you engage with the treatment. So the explanation often comes with that, you know, how the treatment works. Yeah, it's it's such a difficult combination of the beginning being such a crucial period but also so complicated because you have so much to find out uh, about sort of the patient and their experience and yet you need to sort of start dealing with the problem um sticking at the beginning um what is a sort of typical first presentation of a patient that you see and i know typical is probably not the correct word because it must be incredibly varied but are there any sort of warning signs in particular that really sort of tip you off yeah, absolutely. So psychosis as a whole can, I don't know, present very suddenly over a matter of days, for instance, maybe like a drug-induced psychosis or, I don't know, someone who's had a really stressful life event and suddenly, you know, things start to go a bit strange and they don't seem quite themselves and then weeks later they're saying really odd thing or that. So that's, you know, how psychosis might present. But schizophrenia particularly classically has a kind of prodrome and it presents in a fairly, quite a, a similar way often. You know, you can't say always, but um, often you'll have this prodromal period of maybe a few months where someone will, you'll start to have some negative symptoms and positive symptoms, like they'll become a bit more withdrawn into themselves because obviously there's there's something going on for them. And often you never get, you don't know that they're ill, they haven't come in contact with doctors at this point. So you, it's hard to catch them at that point and ask yeah. them like, what's going on for you? Like, what is it like to be you at this time? But what people describe reflecting back on it or when they have been able to ask people there's this experience of perplexity that's often described so this feeling that there's something big going on mm. but i don't know what it is like everything around me feels slightly odd like something is subtly changed in the universe and it's yeah. powerfully relevant to me but i don't know what it is and there's this good growing sense of unease just things lose their common sense just the world stops quite making sense in the way it did mm. It's, quite, it's a really hard thing, I think, to imagine. Mm. I think it's important to try and imagine it, but it's difficult. Um, and yeah, there's these odd sort of disturbances that you can't quite call fully-fledged psychotic symptoms. And people might describe little fragments of auditory hallucination um, or some sort of paranoid ideas. But yeah, there's this sense of something odd happening. Uh, and then some t- usually, classically, you'll have a sort of... It'll, it'll all crystallise into a delusion. And so in that is quite interesting. You can think of the delusion almost as your brain's attempt to make sense of this crippling sense that there's something massive going on. You can't figure mm-hmm. out what it is. So the delusion isn't the symptom, isn't the disease in itself. The delusion is actually like a compensatory mechanism, perhaps. You know, that's, that's a theory. Um, and so then, you know, I figured out what this, what is the weird thing going on? It's because, whatever it may be, uh, my government's trying to kill me and trap me and, I don't know, extract data from my brain or whatever it yeah. might be. And then things will quickly 
you know, once the delusions developed, often maybe things start to go a bit more wrong and a bit more chaotic because someone will very much start behaving as if that were true, because for them it absolutely is. In fact, the funny thing about delusion, it's not just another thing that you believe. It's like has a centrality to your world, mm-hmm. um, which I guess makes sense if like the whole world felt weird and you suddenly make sense of it, then whatever it is, is going to be quite important. So the delusion often will take like a primacy over everything else and they'll have to and they do whatever it is that they need to do to I'm talking kind of general terms, but um, you, have to, you sort of fill it in with the particular con- content of whichever person. Um, but yeah, so classically, that's how schizophrenia will, will present. You'll have this prodrome. Yeah. Things start to go a bit funny. Nothing you can put your finger on. And then psychosis will sort of manifest, become florid psychosis. And then usually someone will end up coming into contact with mental health services at about that point. Because, you know, the kind of ordered life that any of us lead will drastically crash quite often when that psychosis develops. And then it'll classically present there at that point with kind of all the symptoms of psychosis that that we know and love that I've kind of already talked about that's quite interesting so like in the initial phase it's sort of not often detected by healthcare services because people aren't going to present until there's more obvious sort of symptoms and so the patients that experience these obviously the psychiatrists will have an idea about um suitable treatments and at the start there might be a bit of conflict between what the patient wants and the psychiatrist wants but what role do you think patients with schizophrenia should have in sort of defining their own treatment goals and at what stage is this appropriate whether it be the acute stage of psychosis or later on um in the process yeah um so you've kind of i suppose already captured in the question there's a sense of which it changes a bit over the course of the treatment which is is very true um so i mean the reality is in the initial presentation of psychosis if someone is you know, experiencing intense delusions and to from their point of view, they're not ill. They need to, I don't know, do whatever it is they have to do. Escape from the people trying to poison them or uh, stop the government from stealing their brain out of their thoughts, whatever, whatever it might be. Um, they have to do that. And you can't really, you can't, pers- by its very nature, you can't persuade someone that the delusion isn't true. You can't sit and talk to them and reason with them and give them evidence that, uh, no, it's okay that's not true because that's, I don't know, whatever, because that's not how delusions work. The delusion is true above everything else that might be true. And whatever explanations you give as to why evidence you might give that the delusion isn't true, they will find a way to explain why that doesn't apply to in their case, because you're like the full creative power of that person's imagination is directed into making, making sense of that delusion. Um, so yeah, talking about it doesn't work a great deal. Although it's very, very interesting, I think, to really try and explore what that person's experience is and it's an important part of the initial assessment and at least it helps them feel listened to perhaps when their whole family's been telling them for weeks you're talking rubbish like no one's trying to harm you what are you talking about shush kind of thing and maybe you know other healthcare professionals have had that if if you listen to someone that's an important part of engaging them because then at least i'll finally hear someone who's kind of on my side but the reality is you're going to be treating them Enough, and some people have some insight that there's something wrong, and maybe they'll explain it to themselves in different ways, like these medications that help me sleep better. Um, and so there might be a degree of agreeing to the treatment, um, uh, and it's yeah, and often family can be so essential in helping people persuade people that the treatment's the right thing to do, like mum just saying to the patient like just 
take this medication, please. Just, you have to take it. I know you don't understand quite why, but please just do it. Things will get better in a few weeks kind of thing. Um, <laughs> and equally, sometimes that doesn't happen. And sometimes there's absolutely no persuading them of anything. Um, and sometimes you have to give people injections when they don't want to have them, which is really hard. It's kind of a power that psychiatrists have that no other doctors have to treat someone against their will. And it should absolutely never be taken lightly. It's such a big deal. And it's crucial to never forget that as a psychiatrist, but that's a huge thing, depriving someone of their free will because they're locked up in a hospital like a like they're in prison, but they've not done any crimes at all. I mean, you know, assume they haven't, obviously, occasionally in the forensic psychiatry services, People might also have done crimes, but leaving that for now, you know, by and large, mm -hmm. people with psychosis are locked up in hospital having done nothing wrong uh, and you're forcing this treatment on them. Um, and it's because it's in their best interests and you do it. And the Mental Health Act exists to protect them under under that situation and make sure that, you know, everything you're doing, you're doing in their best interests and it's all strictly regulated. So it can't be used inappropriately. Um, yeah. So at the start, people might not have much choice. Um, but you want to just like every day with the nursing team and certainly every week in the consultant ward round, for instance, on an inpatient ward, you're going to be kind of trying to get them more on board with the treatment and see, are they starting to come to themselves a bit more and realise, oh, actually, I have I have been ill. Maybe I do need this treatment. And you're constantly having that back and forth to try and get nudge them into having more insight um, or tease out any insight that they might be developing as a result mm -hmm. of the medications and then yeah kind of right from that point you want to you obviously want people to be as engaged in their care as they possibly can for the simple like mercenary reason that like if if they're taking this medication just because you've told them to and they don't actually like it then when you discharge them they're going to stop and then yeah. they'll get ill again so what have you achieved so it's really it's obviously for all the same reasons that we give patients choice in their treatment you know, a mixture of it's just the best way to do it anyway. And also they're a person and they shouldn't have stuff forced on them. Um, and there are lots of different antipsychotic medications. We always try and start the one that's the ones that are nicest in terms of side effects. Um, but sometimes people have particular bad side effects or they get worse side effects with one, but another one will agree with them better, you know, as with kind of most medications. Um, so you can give them choice in that right from the start. If it's really not agreeing with them, you kind of discuss what would be best. Um, and then usually someone who's been treated in an inpatient setting, they've had their first episode of psychosis, and they've been started on a medication, um, whatever, it, however may it started, you usually start with, I don't know, a bunch of things like short acting benzodiazepines as well as antipsychotics and various things. Uh, and sometimes kind of injectable antipsychotics if, if you have to go that route but you know you want to end up with them being discharged from hospital just on oral medications and then they tend to go under an early intervention in psychosis team which I don't know mm -hmm. something you might have covered in the other rest of the podcast but this is the kind of the main people that the, 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 the mental health service in the community that deals with first episodes of psychosis they see people from the start of their episode of psychosis through to sort of two years later, basically, depending on the trust, it might be a different cutoff line. Um, and they will, you know, basically see people quite more intensively than other normal community mental health services might do. And just try and keep them on the same page and check up with them. How is the medication working? Is it all right? And obviously there are doctors and nurses and everyone. And if the medication's not agreeing with them and try a different one, 
and you know you just make shared decisions i guess all the way through with that um and in the case of someone maybe for instance with kind of chronic schizophrenia where their baseline isn't good um which, you know as does happen to some people where perhaps they some of their delusions never shift um and maybe they need to live in supported accommodation for instance uh, there's this sweet guy we had on our ward the other day uh who has had psychosis since he was 18 he's now 50 something anyway so you know he's lived most of his life with this but he enjoys his life um he has a nice he lives in supported accommodation i think it's not quite a nursing home but you know he gets support with activities of daily living but he's able to do lots of stuff and he goes out every day and he goes to cafe and he goes to church and he goes to various things and that's he just passes his time and has a nice and he's a nice friendly person to talk to and he believes he's a doctor uh, at least he's, right. not, he's never had any medical training but this can find i mean there are worse delusions to have uh, and they, <laughs> but you know so that, that delusion is fixed and it's never going away or as far as it's never gone away yet and it's been what, 40 years um but you know, I know that's I know a... medical students who have that delusion to be fair ah <laughs> uh, yes ah <laughs> uh, it's a good one yeah like for instance he you can he's can choose lots of things about his care and you know if, i know at times when he hasn't liked the place when he's been living kind of help him find somewhere that's better you know all of that but equally for the rest of his life there are going to be kind of bits where you need to take a bit of choice away like so he, when lockdown happened, all the cafes and churches shut and his routine collapsed and suddenly he, he relapsed just because of that. Like his social world sort of fell apart of it. And this has happened to many, many sort of a steady stream of people with kind of lockdown induced psychosis, sadly. Um, but, you know, he was one person and we had to treat him against his will for a little bit on the ward. Um, but he's back now and he's happy to keep having he has a depot medication which is his choice and it's a bit easier because he just has it once a month and then um yeah so you give people as much choice as you can basically it must be really difficult in those early stages of sort of treatment to for both the psychiatrist and the patient because i mean it's such a strange experience having to treat someone against their will but i suppose like anything else in medicine you might just you must just get used to the process of doing it in terms of diagnosis we've talked quite a lot about that already but how often are checklists such as the dsm and the icd uh used and how much of it is clinical judgment because as you've said it's not quite as clear-cut sometimes as it might appear so in my kind of experience for the, the months that I've spent working on wards and uh, clerking people and all of that, doing assessments, it's 100% clinical judgment. I've never seen a checklist uh, in my working life. Um, I think the checklist can be useful. So like we get out the ICD-10 if we're trying to just maybe tease apart whether it's a specific little subtype of psychosis, like some kind of, I don't know, whether it's a no, there are lots, and it's not even that much so that we know because then we treat it differently. It's more so that we put the right diagnosis down on paper. Um, yeah. Whether it was just like a, a transient psychotic episode or a transient schizophreniform episode, like, you know, they're mm. a managery of funny little slightly different things. Um, in terms of, you know, assessing someone, does this person have psychosis um, or does this person have schizophrenia? Is, yeah, it, 
you know, like the back of your hand because you see it every day, the kind of symptoms that you're looking out for. Um, yeah. And I think most doctors similarly don't use checklists. They just know when they see it. Um, and there's an interesting thing with schizophrenia, actually, um, that I'd, I can't say for certain. I think I've occasionally experienced this, but particularly it's been described a lot um, when someone has like classic schizophrenia. Uh, you can almost feel a sort of oddness. There's a kind of like a delusional mood, as it's sometimes called, um, the sense that you can almost you can just feel it in the conversation that this person is in a different reality to you and it feels really strange and you get this sense in yourself that you feel kind of odd and confused. Um, you know, I mean, that's not a, an absolutely diecast reliable diagnostic tool, but it is a useful part of the assessment. And that's kind of how far you go from the clinical guidelines. Um, sorry, from the like diagnostic criteria. But the diagnostic criteria, I mean, so the DSM is mainly, the purpose of it is for research. Like that's kind of why it's written as I understand it. Um, and so they're used a lot in research all the time. So if you want to do a study with people with schizophrenia and you want to, you know, classify exactly who's included and excluded and who meets your criteria for the particular subtype of schizophrenia you want to study, then 100% use the guidelines all the time. And assessing the patients, you use the guidelines. And that's where they kind of come into their own. But yeah, in clinical practice, you just don't, the same way that a cardiologist knows what, a mitral valve murmur sounds like. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that yeah. makes sense. It's so interesting because I I almost wasn't expect wasn't I didn't know what answer to expect from you there because so much of medical school is right. Learn this checklist. This is what this is what it is, and then in reality, it's very different. But I sort of perhaps saw schizophrenia because it's it feels quite nebulous anyway. I thought uh, either they're going to go really hard one way and and stick to this sort of skeleton this sort of, because it's it you know helps ground all these symptoms and make and puts them all into categories and makes it easier or they'll go completely the other way as you've kind of said which is this person feels schizophrenic in, in, in <laughs> something some in the scenarios. air <laughs> yeah i should i should caveat that i don't i think many psychiatrists would say no i don't go by that at all i've never that's yeah. not something i've ever felt felt particularly i as i said i can't say for certain that i've definitely sense that sort of delusional mood it's it's just something that some people have or people have written about a lot um and is i think you know shed some useful light on on all sorts of things on the nature of schizophrenia and on you know the way a person's unconscious can talk to another person's unconscious and what happens there and it's all very interesting um and it may form a little part of some of your assessment, but probably you're just going to be go on. You recognise the symptoms that this person has and you and I guess that's the skill of, of any doctor, really, and particularly in psychiatry, where it's all just very, very complicated. But you tease through all of this content. So like this person, whatever specific things they're talking about, um, I don't know, whatever it may be, you, you tease through all of that, whether it be sort of computer stuff or alien stuff or religious things all sorts of that you'd use that to find like what is what is what is the shape of this delusion even sort of divorced almost from what this person has filled it with but like this is a, a paranoid delusion or this is a grandiose delusion or whatever it may be and that's what you kind of pick up and that's how you diagnose and that's just done during your diagnostic assessment and you you just talk to the person and get them to tell you as much as you can about what they're experiencing and you just kind of pick up all these clues from everything they said 
um, and you you piece it together. And sometimes people will say, yes, uh, that my neighbour is is not only poisoning me, but I know that they they can read my thoughts using the fire hydrant or whatever. Um, and then that's a classic. Okay, so they have this feeling that their thoughts are being interfered with, and that's a very classic schizophrenia thing. And then you that's you like you don't use a checklist, but that's sort of checklist in your head. Classic schizophrenia. Um, and then, then maybe that's less likely to be just a drug-induced psychosis or mania or whatever it may be. Um, yeah. Yeah. So you don't, you, but you don't, yeah, you never really use the checklist, <laughs> practically. <laughs> that's good to know. <laughs> but um, we were when we were reading about schizophrenia and psychosis, um, we were quite interested in the way that it's portrayed in the media um in terms of in films and things like that but also in in the news in general um and to what extent you think that that sort of representation that impacts the people living with schizophrenia and impacts their experiences yeah it's a big thing to be told you have schizophrenia like yeah we all kind of imagine what that might conjure up and i think you know all mental illness still has various kinds of stigma but i think different illnesses have different different stigmas like i suppose a great swathe of them generally have the kind of stigma of being a sort of a weakness or a failing yeah. a sort of a inability to cope with the strings and arrows of life therefore you've become depressed or anxious so you've got anything sort of you know and that's you can you can spend as much time as you like kind of unpacking and falsifying that that stigma but in terms of schizophrenia um, I guess the stigma is more around you being dangerous, mm-hmm. like this being an, an incurable brain disease that's going to make you do terrifying, uncontrollable things. And the media certainly kind of feeds into that. And, you know, psychotic is still an insult that means you're crazy. Um, so we have all this. Yeah. And I mean, I guess schizophrenia is the closest real clinical phenomenon to the popular conception of being mad like you know and obviously you have delirium and you have dementia and other things that make me you know mad but i suppose schizophrenia is like the classic thing um it's the most kind of shakespearean madness definitely. yeah exactly like yeah exactly it very much is and i think we're all frightened of that like going mad the people we love going mad there's a sense mm. of you're there but you're not there it's very very disconcerting it challenges all our you know ideas about what a person is because the person's sort of still there but they're sort of not and suddenly they're not just a normal whole person and we have to be very confused about what a person is all of a sudden so you know the whole idea of madness is inherently unsettling uh and schizophrenia therefore is also inherently unsettling and i think you know when quite apart from the media stigma and all of that and the name of schizophrenia and all that like if your family member suddenly or over the space of weeks stops being themselves and starts behaving weirdly and saying all sorts of strange things that you know indicate that the world they're living is not quite the world that everyone else is living in you know that's that's inherently quite frightening and horrible for a family Mm -hmm. member like it's it's very unsettling and and that's not the stigma that's the nature of the disease and it's you know families need lots of you know, should have appropriate amounts of support from the ward and kind of, you know, explaining this is what's happened to to your son, to your father, to whatever, whoever it is, um, so that they can make sense of that really scary thing. But yeah, yeah, the stigma doesn't help because the stigma is 
of dangerous people, which by and large isn't true. Like, I mean, I guess like any mental illness, you're much more like far, far more likely to be the victim of violence and abuse than the perpetrator. Mm-hmm. There are kind of specific small groups. So kind of untreated schizophrenia with comorbid substance abuse. Within that group, there is a higher incidence of violent crime. So like yeah. there is a risk there, but it's like, you know, doubles or triples maybe your risk. Whereas being drunk multiplies it by 20 or, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, in terms of committing violent crime. So it's not proportional to be as scared of that illness entity as perhaps we are. Um, but yeah. Yeah, but it's a difficult one because it's incredibly pervasive, the sort of fear of schizophrenia, mm. because it's sort of... Um, because I think probably in part because it's uncommon, uh, you know, the, the stigma to, with sort of depression and anxiety is still there, but, the, you know, it's become increasingly, you know, people have become increasingly educated about this kind of thing, whereas the average person probably doesn't understand schizophrenia, schizophrenia at all. Yeah, exactly. Uh, two, two or three weeks ago, I had I knew very little <laughs> about schizophrenia as well. Um, so, you know. Hooray for student selective projects. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, but the stigma is not all bad, I guess. Like, I think the stigma is has shifted a bit. And um, there are yeah. lots of, there's lots of good media out there that's portraying, you know, schizophrenia as it really is and giving a sense into it. I'm trying to think. There was a something on iPlayer by an actor who's in... Sorry, I should have rehearsed these details before this podcast. I think it's called My Psychosis and Me, I think was the title of it. Um, and it's this British actor uh, whose name I forget. Anyway, <laughs> he talks about having having schizophrenia, well, having psychosis, and he's recovered and is now working. But um, David like Harewood, I think. Yes. I found it. That's, that's <laughs> the guy. So, I mean, that is a... And I mean, I watched that and learned stuff and found it moving and, and you know and i see this every day that like, it was a great yeah. documentary can thoroughly recommend it but that's you know breaking down the stigma a little bit um and no i didn't see the joker but from what i and not because i didn't want to i just never got around yeah. to going to this and then all the cinemas <laughs> closed but um yeah. like that I, as far as i can gather is a slightly like you can see his side of things he's not just the yeah. crazy bad guy and that's all there is to it um and i don't know if I'm a, I'm a bit of a gamer myself. I got a Nintendo Switch and there's a game Fantastic. called Senua's Sacrifice. Uh, Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's quite a small game and it's quite a short game, but it's, you know, it's about a Celtic warrior fighting things. But a part right. of the game is it's an amazing simulator for psychosis. And oh, this right. woman you play as has psychosis and all you have to play it where well, you're kind of advised to play it with headphones and the whole way through the game there are these voices talking to you and they respond to what you do um like everything throughout the game yeah. uh and then part of the you know the, the things you have to do in the game is to see funny connections in your environment that other people might yeah. see. anyway so it tries to and it was designed by game developers in working with neuroscientists and people with lived experience of schizophrenia so it's it's a good oh, portrayal wow. of what That's psychosis so is, and there's stuff like that out there now, like yeah. more and more in the last few years. So it's not it's not all bad with the stigma, but it's still there. It's definitely great to see a sort of an increase in positive media for sure, because I think for a long time it's been <laughs> less than positive. Yeah, we've sort of discussed a little bit already about how it can be quite difficult for a psychiatrist to deliver. Uh, 
to deliver treatment against a patient's will. But other than that, what are the kinds of challenges that clinicians might face when treating patients with schizophrenia? And how do you personally sort of cope with these? Um, so I suppose part of it is certainly at the start, your patient's not going to thank you for mm, yeah. delivering their care in the way that, you know, many patients probably would in other circumstances, you know, in general yeah. medicine. So that's, you know, can be difficult as you're little, I don't know, done through med school and you've gone through F1, F2 and you just want to help people. And then you have these people you try to help, but they just tell you to piss off. At this. Yeah. You know, that's a bit hard. You get over it. It's not, not the end of the world. But um, I think, yeah, and the, the way to respond, there's the, the sort of the responsibility of treating someone against their will, but also I guess it's just, it just can be a bit hard to see that done to someone when you know that they have, yeah, when they haven't mm. done anything wrong and you, yeah. this is the right thing to do, but they at this moment are not enjoying it at all. And you, yeah, um, and you feel really like the bad, bad guy, even though you yeah. know in the long run it's helpful. Exactly. You feel even more like the bad guy when actually as the doctor, you're not the one giving the injection. You prescribe it, which is fine, easy job, just sit there with your pen and your drug chart, and then the nurses have yeah. to go and hold this person down and give them an injection. And they're the ones who, if anyone gets sort of lashed out at with an elbow or whatever it may be. <laughs> so you're, you're definitely the bad guy in that whole situation. But yeah, I think that's, you know, something you kind of come to terms with that everyone's nurses and doctors are all on the same page. That's, that's the thing that needs to happen. Um, and I think, yeah, it's hard as with any chronic illness, if you have some patients who don't get as well as you'd like them to. Um, yeah. But equally, I, I mean, I think the, you know, the difficulties of that initial fact of having to treat someone against their will, they don't want to be in hospital, they're constantly demanding, like, let me go, I want to go home and do this, this and this. Yeah. And you have to just be like, no, I can't let you go, home. You're, you're stuck in my hospital. And it's like a very clear power dynamic there that doesn't mm. sit easy with, with doctors. Um, but equally, you've seen lots and lots of times before how in a few weeks' time that person who you've met when they're not themselves at all that you will finally get to meet them as they actually are and that's that's amazing um it's like a complete transformation yeah. <laughs> of the, yeah. the their self uh like we had a guy who kind of was more sort of schizoaffective disorder so there was mania and psychosis in there as well and he came with the first presentation and he was so rude he was like the brashest he was a proper like rude boy yeah. and he completely took over the ward he was like strutting up and down he wasn't violent at any point but he was just shouting all the time really loud very annoying and obnoxious and he kind of ganged up with some of the other patients on nurses you know it's it horrible but then when he when he got well and it you know it took a few weeks but he's the sweetest guy like and i think he would have been mortified if he'd kind of known what he'd been like when he was unwell and he knew a bit of it but it's absolutely like wouldn't say boo to a goose and you get to see that kind of transformation as a result of what you've the, the plan you've made as a psychiatrist have this treatment and do this this and this and the person comes back and their family sees them again you know themselves and that's and that I guess keeps you through the the difficult bits um and I mean psychiatry I suppose has a reputation for being yeah. a, a specialty where you see lots of difficult things um but that's always been kind of true and the specialty has evolved to cope with it and as a result yeah, you, you come up against difficult things in psychiatry, all of the stuff that we've talked about. You're talking to people who are very distressed all day, every day, and you, you hear life stories that are often horrible. But it has the most amazing level of support for trainees. Like, I have so much 
protected time that is never interrupted come hell or high water where I can talk to my supervisor for an hour a week and go to sort of reflective groups with other trainees and have all of this time to to cope with that. And so it doesn't feel like a burden because you have that much support. And it's always the fact that there's difficult stuff to deal with is is there and is acknowledged and is from the right day from the uh, from day one like yeah is is dealt with and whereas i guess it can be hard in the rest of medicine and you often come across stuff that's difficult just yeah. people suffering and dying and that level of support just isn't there most of the time at all and you kind of just have to deal with it on your own um so i think yeah mm-hmm. overall with that taken into account psychiatry is I would say kind of a better place to be like you feel very supported and it doesn't feel like a horrible difficult burden because you 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 helped through it it's good that support is there yeah brilliant uh well thank you so much for coming on my pleasure it, it provides a really fantastic insight into sort of what it's like to deal with these kinds of patients and to deal with these conditions um, that you just really can't get in a textbook. <laughs> we, we've yeah. had a lot of reading to do <laughs> for this and no amount of reading could have taught us what you've taught us I know, us today, it's a nightmare, so particularly so with... Because you can read about lots of medical conditions and kind of imagine what they might be like, which is you know, an important part of having empathy. But with so much of psychiatry, it's really hard to do that. You can't just imagine what it's like to have anhedonia and not mm-hmm. be able to enjoy anything the whole day through, be like separated from all your positive emotions by this like thick wall of glass or whatever. You know, those experiences that people have in depression or equally psychosis. You, 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 it's so hard to imagine what that's like and be able to still see that this is a person experiencing a thing. This isn't just a crazy person. Like This is a person experiencing this horrible, difficult yeah. experience. And yeah, you can kind of only get that through well, talking to people who've experienced it to some extent. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I just, as a replacement for your psych blog, I can only just really recommend documentaries like Me and My Psychosis, <laughs> sorry, My Psychosis and Me, um, that give you a bit of a window into what it's like as a patient. Um, because you do kind of need that to get psychiatry, unfortunately. Like, it's just, it's key. Because yeah. it's all about experiences. That's, that's what it is. You can't see it. You just have to hear what it feels like from someone.